If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolfaw, and we have a really exciting show today. I'm thrilled to have with me today actually a first-year medical student. His name is Andrew Merrillman. He's a first-year medical student in Colorado, and what I think is really fascinating, and the reason I have him on the show, is that he was and still is actually a paramedic who has taken a real interest in surgical airway management. He's actually taken such an interest that after doing his own training in it, he's now frequently teaching this to other people and reached out. And I thought it would be great to really get him on the show to talk to people about best practices for this. So Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dr. Wolpe. I appreciate it. I'm excited to be here. So let me start by asking you to tell us a little bit about how you developed this interest. So what, you know, was it, I assume the time you were paramedic, how did you develop your interest and how did you kind of foster that interest? Sure. So, I mean, during paramedic training, we're obviously taught about this procedure and I mean, airway management in general. And then you get into practice and you kind of see things don't always go as well as we'd like them to. And I think that specifically applies to surgical airways. Um, these cases are often very challenging and don't always have a great outcome. So I got interested in, uh, you know, how we can make this better and how we can do a better job. And to do that, I just started, you know, training myself, uh, you know, training myself and, um, trying to educate myself and do a better job. And then I, once I found that, you know, there are better ways we can, we can do this. I wanted to expand that out to the paramedics I work with and other providers. So I started teaching it and I found, uh, you know, ways to do it with pig tracheas and other, you know, more high fidelity ways and, uh, was able to get people much more comfortable with it. So I, uh, started teaching and I also, uh, some of the ways I, you know, educated myself, I, I was able to go to uh, rich Levitan's cadaver course down in Baltimore uh, that was uh, that was very helpful, and uh, you know, just repeated practice on models and uh, pig tracheas, things like that. Yeah, I, I think uh, I've heard really good things about uh, Rich's course, so that seems like a great way for people who are interested to get involved as well. And so, and now you're doing some of your own courses, right? Yeah, I teach when I can. I recently uh, taught a group of medical students uh, about uh, just basic uh, bougie assisted surgical crikes on pig pig trachea is just to kind of introduce them to the procedure and uh, some of the finer points of it. But uh, when I can, I do like to teach this procedure for sure. Well, that's great. All right. So why don't we start by tell me a little about the human factors issues when it comes to these kind of uh, airways, because it's a big, big deal. Unlike 
just a regular intubation where at least for people in anesthesia, this is something that, you know, we do all day, every day and are very comfortable with. It's very different. And the fact that it's different and rare affects, uh, by which I mean the sur- that doing a surgical airway is different and rare, really affects uh, how it feels for people and the issues that go along there. So tell me a little bit about what human factors are involved here. Sure. I mean, as you mentioned, it's certainly uh, a major procedure, low frequency, uh, high acuity, high stakes, and typically done by people who don't normally perform surgical procedures. I think no matter where you are, whether you're in the ED, the pre-hospital setting, in the operating room, nobody is doing these frequently unless, you know, you're an ENT surgeon. But even then, those are more elective and uh, less, you know, less stress, le- lower stakes because, you know, you can typically ventilate the patient. So when you get to these procedures, there's often a mental roadblock there because people are taught that these things are, you know, low frequency, it's a last ditch effort, you're probably never going to do one. And then when the time arises, they're just not ready. Right. You know, so yeah, yeah, no, exactly. So people aren't ready, and then they're afraid or reluctant to do it, right? Yeah, absolutely. They're reluctant. One of the biggest reasons these, these, uh, these surgical airways failed because they're performed too late. So people are so intimidated and they spend so much time, uh, you know, trying other techniques that have already failed, uh, that they, they perform the surgical airway too late. Even if it's a successful procedure, it might just be, uh, you know, too late to save the patient. So, um, I think encouraging, encouraging the mindset that this is something that can happen and does happen on a fairly regular basis and being prepared for it is absolutely essential. Um, you know, during training people, like I said, people are taught this is something you're never going to do. And that instills this uh, mindset that leads to people not being prepared and not really, um, you know, not training on the procedure. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's incredibly important. You know, I think a lot of people associate or even equate a doing a cricothyrotomy with uh, having completely failed the airway. They think, you know, that there's really, in their minds, it feels like no difference between just total failure and not being able to get access and doing a cric. It doesn't, we somehow lose this idea that a, that a successful cricothyrotomy is actually having saved the situation, not failed it. Uh, it really depending on how you look at it. And so I think that's a huge issue is that people are so reluctant to do it because it feels like admitting failure and it feels like you've now gone down an irreversible road where you failed the patient. And there's, of course, stories uh, that uh, you hear about uh, surgeons, uh, even ENT surgeons sitting in an operating room with an anesthesiologist unable to intubate and no one's, no one's doing anything. No one's doing a surgical airway. Um, either because they don't think of it or they're afraid to do it or they are convinced if they just keep trying enough the other way it'll work despite desaturations and uh, an inability to mask ventilate. It's really striking um, that this happens. Yeah, exactly. That's a really great point about uh, it being viewed as a failure. You know, of course, it's, it's at the end of our airway algorithms, but it's still in the airway algorithm, right? It's something that you should be doing if if the uh, time comes. And viewing it as a failure just is another barrier to actually getting it done. So, uh, you know, just m- making sure that people understand it's a essential part of the airway algorithm. And when you get to that point, it's something you actually should be doing and certainly not a failure. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think, um, and maybe you'll talk a little about this, but it does occur to me that, you know, like anything that you're reluctant to do, uh, taking the first step 
is often uh, will kind of reduce some of that inertia and open up the possibility. And so I do think that if you've got to a point where a couple of attempts in, you're still unable to intubate, and certainly if you're if you're unable to very uh, successfully mask ventilate, starting to prep the neck, right? I mean, just even if you're even if you don't ever end up making an incision in the neck, but just putting on some chlorhexidine on the neck. Uh, opens up. It makes it seem like this could be real. You kind of get over that hump of fear of of or that hump of like I can't even imagine trying this to the fact that it's a possibility. And then while you're finishing up, you're you're continuing to try to mask and to put an LMA in, et cetera. At least now in your mind, there there is this final step that's that's there, and it doesn't feel like quite such a brick wall. I don't. Know, what do you think about that? Oh, absolutely. I think. Um acknowledging the possibility of a surgical airway from the start is a, a big way to kind of get over that barrier. And I mean, in any, I think in any emergent airway, it's a good idea to assess the neck prior and even prep it if you really think it's a possibility. Yeah, but, um, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, and also when you do an airway briefing, it should be part of your plan that so that the team is also on board. So when you get to that point, you know, and you start to reach for that scalpel, not everyone is freaking out in the room and they're actually, you know, ready for this to happen. Absolutely. So tell me a little about, you are a big proponent of just getting people to teach one procedure instead of, instead of a lot of different options. Tell me a little about that. Yeah, absolutely. So for, and this is different than, you know, the elective surgical airway that a, an ENT surgeon might do. There's obviously many different approaches, but when you're in an emergent situation, um, having one standardized procedure that everyone is on the same page about definitely reduces uh, the cognitive burden. Cause a lot of this is people aren't really adequately trained, but they've been trained on four different procedures. So when it, the time arises, they're not sure which one to do. They don't remember the steps of each so they're, uh, you know, that's just one of the things they have to think about. Whereas if we teach one procedure across the spectrum of pre-hospital emergency anesthesia, it, it kind of levels the playing field and makes sure everyone is prepared for that situation. Right. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, you know, I know that um, when I was a resident, we were taught and and told that the way to do this was uh, with a kit that was a, a percutaneous cricothyrotomy Seldinger technique kit. Um, and we'll talk about how that really probably isn't the best way to go. Um, so what, what would you suggest? Uh, what do people, um, if you're going to teach one procedure, what should you teach? Sure. So the preferred procedure, I think, in the emergent airway is going to be the bougie-assisted surgical cricothyrotomy. And this was really made uh, kind of famous by uh, Darren Browdy out of uh, University of New Mexico. He, I think he published one of the first papers on this. And what it is, it's, it's just a very simple, uh, I would say, fewer steps procedure to uh, securing a surgical airway. And there's less moving parts. There's and it's more likely to be successful now that it's been studied a few times. We actually know it's probably more effective than your Seldinger techniques or your quick tricks or other kits like that. Right. So the bougie-assisted surgical cricothyrotomy. So I, I, I want you to take us through that. Let's back up a sec, though, and just tell me uh, and, and review for our audience, when would you be even be doing this at all? When is the surgical airway indicated? Sure. So the traditional indication is inability to oxygenate by any other means. So you've already uh, 
tried to bag mask ventilate and you can't do that. You've tried to intubate, you can't do that. And your surgical, air, or sorry, your supraglottic airways have been ineffective. So your LMAs, your eye gels are, you, you either can't place them or you're not getting adequate oxygenation that way. So once you get to that point, that's an obvious indication for a surgical airway. Um, there are also plenty of gray areas here. So potentially a patient that you can bag, but you cannot otherwise secure an airway. So if someone who requires prolonged ventilation, you may need to go that route. Right. So that's, uh, you know, obviously you always have the option in that situation of waking them up. But if they, if that's not an option, if you have to go forward with the surgery and it's going to be a long one, you know, and you, it's it, not only do you probably not want to bag somebody for an entire, you know, 10 hour surgery, but also there's no guarantee that just because you can bag them now, you'll be able to bag them in a, in an hour or two. Oh, certainly. And I mean, you know, and you also have to consider uh, if the airway is that unstable, do you proceed with a procedure um, in the operating room or do you have to abandon it entirely? It just depends on the situation. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Are there other gray areas you think are important to keep in mind? Yeah, absolutely. So there's always a patients with uh, severe upper airway trauma or deformity who you're, you know, you're looking at them and you, you're thinking, there's no way I could even bag mask ventilate this patient, let alone uh, intubate them. So am I going to want to put them down for an RSI or for some other sedated technique, or do I want to just move to a surgical airway? So there's always those patients that might have a high chance of deterioration where you want to do a surgical airway as a primary technique. Right. And as you said before, and I think it's important to emphasize, not all of these uh, are going to be obviously emerging cricothyrotomies and not all of them are going to be done by the anesthesiologist uh, or if you're in the emergency room by the emergency doctor or whoever. Uh, these are perfect examples of a time when if you have access to a difficult airway response team like we do here and like I discussed on a prior episode with Dr. Lynette Mark, this is a perfect time when you might call that response team to come to talk about here's this issue. It's going to be difficult. We've, nobody's in crisis right now. We've got some time, but we do need to get an airway. How are we going to do it? And then you'll review all the different options. We could do an awake fiber optic. We could uh, take the patient to the operating room and do an awake trach with ENT. So there are a lot of different options, but you do want to, if you have time and you've got experts around who can have a discussion, it's always better to communicate and have a discussion about the best approach. Now, that's very different than if it's a patient who comes into the ED desaturating, crashing, you don't have time to have a large discussion and take all the time you want. Though certainly, if, it's a, if you have a concern of a difficult airway, even in a crashing situation, call that difficult airway response team if you can, even if they don't get there right away and you have to take the first stab at the airway, hopefully they'll be there to help back you up if that first attempt doesn't work. Yeah, definitely. It can't be overstated that getting experts there if you have time is a huge benefit and trying to make a plan in advance before you go into an airway that's potentially difficult. And we know that we can't really super accurately predict who's going to be difficult. So you end up in these situations unknowingly too. But if you have someone who's going to be uh, definitely difficult, getting experts there, it's definitely beneficial. Great. All right. So now let's talk about the, the way you recommend doing it. And of course, it's not just you. This is really uh, when you hear people talk about the uh, preferred approach these days to a, an emergency surgical airway, the bougie-assisted surgical cricothyrotomy is really what you hear. So tell me why. Why is that the preferred approach? Sure. So this, pref this uh, approach eliminates a lot of the uh, technicalities that come with like a uh, Seldinger technique or these other kit 
uh, type techniques. There's no trach hooks involved. There's no Kelly clamps involved. It's really just a few simple tools that you have readily available at the bedside on most airways anyway. And uh, there's there's been shown to be fewer complications and uh, more likelihood to be successful. Great. And so that sounds like a great option. Simpler is better. Certainly evidence-based is great. So what about um, how to do it? How do you go about doing this? And I'll say we will post, you You mentioned to me, you've got some links um, you'll give me and I'll post them on the show notes uh, to some videos. So people after hearing this while they're out for their run, want to come back and watch a video to see how it actually looks in real life. We'll put those links up, but tell me how to do this procedure. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll definitely provide some videos for this. Um, I mean, so to, to, to kind of summarize it in a few easy steps, it's vertical incision, a horizontal incision, and then finger bougie tubes. So if you think about it like that, it's pretty simple. And we'll get into the details here. I think it's easiest uh, from the start. I think it's easiest to be on the side of the patient that matches your hand dominance. So if I'm right hand dominant, I'm going to be on the right side of the patient. And what that means is that I can uh, rest my right hand on the patient's sternum when I make my vertical incision. And that just makes it uh, easier to make that first incision. And there's more room because you're not maneuvering around the patient's chin if you're trying to make a, an upward incision. So we're going to make a vertical incision from the top of the laryngeal prominence to down below the cricoid ring. And this, uh, this can be difficult in patients who are very obese if you uh, can identify this, uh, the landmarks. And this vertical incision is essential in those patients to try to get uh, deeper so that you can identify uh, the landmarks you need to, to do the procedure. So the vertical incision and then followed by a horizontal incision through the cricothyroid membrane. So once you get down to the membrane, you're then going to make a horizontal incision in the membrane. Yes. Yeah, so we're going to make that horizontal incision through the cricothyroid membrane, and then you're going to be palpating uh, to identify, re-identify that membrane after you uh, have made that vertical incision because there's likely to be blood in the field. So I would not rely on sight to make these uh, incisions. You want to be able to do it by feel, and when you're training, that's one thing to focus on is uh, learning the anatomy uh, by feel. So you made that vertical incision followed by a horizontal incision through the membrane, and then you're going to uh, insert your finger into the uh, hole you've made there through the membrane, and that's to hold your position. And that and also help dilate that uh, hole for the bougie to pass through. And then you're going to take your bougie and put it kind of behind your finger and use your finger as a guide into the trachea. Um, one of the complications here that can be seen is the bougie ends up in a false lumen, and that's mm -hmm. obviously a bad. So we want to try to avoid that. So using your finger as a guide to get that bougie in there uh, really helps avoid that. <clears throat> so once you've got the bougie in, you're going to advance it uh, just enough to to the point that it's not going to come out. You don't want to uh, you don't necessarily want to main stem it just because of the risk of trauma. Mm -hmm. uh, once the bougie's there and you're you're confident you're in the right place, then you're going to advance your ET tube. And this is typically a 6.0 ET tube, or you can sometimes put a 5.5 if, if you need a smaller one, um, if you're using an adult bougie. Uh, 6.0 ET tube advanced through the uh, cricothyroid membrane and just until the cuff is through. And once the cuff's through, you can remove your bougie and secure your tube just like you would normally, uh, inflate the cuff and confirm with end tidal CO2. 
Great. So that sounds like a very, uh, of course, it sounds straightforward and, and uh, not so straightforward in real life, but that's, of course, why you practice. Um, but those steps are are very succinct and, and you know, you're not going to forget. It's not, there's not 25 steps and you need to have a huge checklist in front of you, right? It's a very straightforward in terms of the number of steps. And I think that's one of the real uh, things that appeals about it. Um, so you're, uh, again, going to do a horizontal, uh, sorry, a vertical incision in the skin, both to get through the skin, but also in a person, as you said, who's obese, you want to be able to get down to the anatomy so you can feel it because you may not be able to see it. And then once you identify that membrane, a horizontal incision there, then finger, then bougie. Now you did say, you know, you want to be careful not to be in a false lumen. You want to verify that your bougie is in place. Are there things that you're doing to make sure you're, you're confident your bougie is in the right place? Yeah. So, um, you may potentially feel tracheal rings, uh, which is the, you know, your traditional bougie, uh, confirmation, uh, finding when you were, if, when you're intubating a patient, but you don't always feel it when you're doing a surgical airway because of the angle that you're entering the trachea, the, the coup de tip might just not reach the rings. Um, really co- confirming the bougie placement is a little bit difficult. If you're not sure you're in the right place, you can gently try to advance until you get hold up in, in one of the main stem bronchi. But, um, even if you were in a false lumen, you may still feel some sort of holdup. So it's a little bit challenging to really confirm your bougie's in the right place. I would say the best thing is when you're when you're inserting it, really using your finger as a guide, and in, in, you know making sure that your finger is truly in the trachea. Once you've once you've uh, inserted your finger there, you can feel around inside uh, you know the inferior larynx there and make sure that you're in the right place. And then once that bougie goes in, you should be able to tell that you've entered into the same uh, opening. Great. All right. So as we said, easy to say, not as easy to do. So how do you recommend people train so that they actually can feel confident in the doing of this? Sure. I think one of the big things is frequency. So a lot of people get their initial training in in these procedures and then uh, never really practice them again. And since we're obviously not doing this very frequently, it's, it's about doing it on a regular basis. So you can do this. Uh, just isolated skill training is fairly simple to arrange and to you know organize for a department or an organization. Um, I like to use pig tracheas because they're fairly anatomically accurate um, and they give you more of a real feel as to what you're going to encounter. And uh, but if you can't access pig tracheas, you can use 3D printed models. And there's uh, we'll try to provide a link to a a model that's been recommended that you can uh, download and have printed and that's pretty anatomically accurate as well. And then you just need to add a, a skin layer to it to make it more realistic. Um, and then nice. obviously you want to be incorporating this into simulation too. So the, the isolated skills practice is going to get you the technical skills of it, but simulation helps address the human factors portions and making sure that you know when to do the procedure and are comfortable deciding to do the procedure. So um, putting yourself in situations where the need arises is also very important. Great. And how about visualization, like kind of taking yourself mentally through it? Is that helpful? Absolutely. So I like to use visualization for a lot of high acuity procedures that I don't do very often or ever. Um, You want to actually, uh, really, it's just mentally practicing the procedure. And there's actually some evidence that shows that this can be... uh, as good as simulation when you do it properly. And it's really putting yourself in the mind space of I'm going to do a surgical airway 
and walking yourself through all the steps in your in your mind and just imagining how it would actually go. And that can be very effective as well if you can't uh, do simulation or practice. Nice. And as you said, I mean, there's actually good data for that. It's in a variety of areas, even sports, where if you simulate in your mind going through, for example, your swing before you get up to bat in baseball or your swing before you step up to the ball in golf, that actually is very, very helpful. So um, I, I absolutely believe that that's helpful in this situation as well. Let me ask you, what about pediatrics? It, is this also uh, the technique you would recommend to people with who need to do a surgical airway in a kid? Uh, so it, it depends on their age, obviously, and their anatomy. Typically, if they have reached puberty, this is an option, and they should have the anatomy developed well enough. But if there's any question, um, you know, the the cricothyroid membrane is just not large enough to perform this procedure. So there are other options that you might have to consider in uh, pediatrics. And luckily, uh, surgical emergency surgical airways in kids are very, very uncommon. But uh, you definitely have to have a plan for that as well. So there's uh, there's needle jet ventilation is a common temporizing measure that's recommended in kids. Uh, but the bougie assisted uh, procedure would not be good for your really small small children. Okay, great. Yeah, and I am not familiar with the approach in, in uh, small children, as you say. So um, that is something that if you are dealing with those kids, you should definitely uh, make sure you know the appropriate technique. But the, the same principles of making sure you are familiar with it and you practice are important as well, regardless of what the technique is. Yeah, absolutely. If, if you're managing kids on a regular basis, having same idea, having a standardized approach, something that you're comfortable with and have practiced uh, is very important. And, you know, it's equally important to be ready to manage these airways and kids, too. Great. Uh, all right. So let me ask you before we end, anything else uh, you want to add? Anything that we didn't cover? Uh, yeah. So I just wanted to um, kind of put a plug in for the airway app. And if you haven't heard of this, it's an app where you can report uh, surgical airways and actually also awake fiber optic intubations. Uh, it's, it's an app that was developed by Laura Dugan and uh, her colleagues. She's an anesthesiologist in Canada, and she's looking to collect data on these lower frequency, high acuity airways. And as we know, they're, since they are so low frequency, it's hard to study them. So she's looking at uh, collecting surgical airway data and compiling, and they, they recently published their first data set last year. Great. And so is that uh, easy? We can put a link to that in the show notes as well? Absolutely, yeah. We can put a link to the app and to uh, the first paper they published, and they also have a website where you can read more about the, uh, the app and what they're doing called airwaycollaboration.org, and we can link that. Great. Well, Andrew, thank you so much. I think this was really useful, and I hope people out there, um, you know, spend some time thinking about this. And then, of course, let us know uh, via the comments if people have anything to add. But thank you very much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. That was great. Thank you to Andrew for coming on the show. Let us know what you thought. Go to ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. Leave a comment. We can all learn from what you have to say as well. Let us know how you manage these things. If you're someone with a lot of expertise, do you agree with Andrew's technique? Anything else that you have to say? And also, if you do pediatric surgical airways, let us know uh, how it's different. I think that'd be really interesting for folks to know, too. All right. Go to the website, acrac.com. You can see all of the episodes there. And, of course, if you are a fan of the show, 
consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. And, of course, if you prefer, you can go to paypal.me slash ACRAC and leave a donation there. Thank you so much to those who have already donated and are already patrons. Big thank you to Brian Park for the outlines he does for the show's and, of course, our original ACRAC music is composed by the one and only Dennis Quo. He is fantastic, as is his music. Check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC Podcast and Andrew Merrillman, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.